Good morning and welcome to our latest Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And I am back from my travels, or in the between them, I suppose one is never really done. Uh, but I'm back from Singapore and Australia, where I played two really interesting war games on a post-Ukraine world for Barclays. And then I went to the great Informa conference, Finnovate, the Finnovate conference in London, where I saw a lot of old friends, even going back to my college days at St. Andrews, which was great fun, and gave the keynote on the state of the world economy just as the banking crisis hit. Again, it's one of those examples of timing being perfect. And I thought today I would expand. We do a little macroeconomics because there are three basic things that you need to do to be a world-class political risk analyst. And if you can do all three well, um, you're in the game. And in fact, my firm's basic uh, pitch is there are other military analysts in our league, but not many. There are even fewer political analysts in our league, but there are some. And there are a number of macroeconomic analysts in our league. But there's nobody, nobody, nobody out there who does the three as well as we do. The macroeconomics, the political stuff, and the strategic geopolitical aspects of the job. Uh, very, 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 very few people who are good at one. To be good at all three is, is a great gift. And that's what we try to bring to the work. And so it'd be fun today to do the macro. Just as the Silicon Valley Bank fails and we have a global banking crisis, it seems the time to do that. Of course, as I was saying, our travels are never over. Next week, I'm off to play yet another war game at beautiful Lake Como, almost a home game, just an hour away uh, from uh, where I live here in Milan at Lake Como, gorgeous Lake Como. Going to spend three or four days out there with a great group of people playing a war game and enjoying the Villa Dest, one of the nicest hotels in the world, just a, a city over from where George Clooney hangs out. So if I see him in a bar, I'll let you know. And then uh, after that, uh, our nose to the grindstone about the book. We're making great progress there. We're about to sign a number of deals, and I'll let you know when those are done. Um, as to having uh, basically a publisher, we're almost there, and a PR machine behind the book so that we can get as many copies to as many people as possible. I've never understood people who thought that, that you were good at what we did if you were so obscure that no one read you. It just means you're a bad speaker and a bad writer. I have an evangelical view of my work. I want absolutely everyone to read it. And so locking down this wonderful, uh, and I'll tell you more about the book publisher when we get there, and the PR firm that comes with that means that we're going to get our book, which we hope to change the nature of the Republican Party. And again, if you change the Republicans, you change America. And if you change America, you change the world. I mean, that's what we're trying to do. It is unabashedly ambitious, and we almost have the team in place to do it. And we're about 40% through the writing. So in between all the traveling, the Villa Destin Lake Como next, and then next month, Dubai. I'll tell you more about that adventure when uh, my chief of staff, the trustee, John Goodnight, and I head off to Dubai. Uh, but before that, uh, it'll be the book, the book, the book. But before that, I want to talk about the beast of inflation claiming it's banking victims. Um, one of the great things about my job is that you get to meet really interesting people who've done really interesting things. And one of the great examples of this was a, I think Agatha Christie, I was snowed in in a Swiss chalet. I'd been giving a speech a number of years ago and we were snowed in and couldn't get out. So I was, I was stuck in, in a Swiss chalet that was run by a, a bank that was, I was working with. And they'd had a conference, and me and the other guest at, uh, at the chalet 
were stuck with each other for an entire day where they served this fantastic food, first-rate Riesling, and we had a view out of the Swiss Alps. So not a bad place to be stuck. Even better, I was stuck with the legendary Paul Volcker, former chairman of the Federal Reserve, and the man who, along with Ronald Reagan, almost single-handedly, the two of them, killed the beast of inflation for two generations in 1980 to 1982, where it's only now begun to resurface again. And so because we were stuck together and because the late Mr. Volcker, who is sadly since deceased, but what a wonderful and generous man that he would sit down with me. We sat in front of this roaring fire, drinking Riesling, having meal after meal, first rate meal, Michelin star chef kind of stuff. And we're sitting there talking and I'm plying him with Riesling and trying to ask him every single question I can about how he did something right. We forget people ought to be famous, not for being famous like the Kardashians, or Paris Hilton, but because of what they actually did. And Paul Volcker saved the world, along with Ronald Reagan, from global inflation. That's the reason someone ought to be famous. And so I'm plying him with Riesling and asking him how he did it. And Volcker said a number of very interesting things. He was incredibly generous to me, and I look back upon that wonderful day with great fondness. And one of the things he said was, look, people act like the state of being now, which is ultra low, low rates of inflation, are the norm because we've had them for two generations, but they've forgotten how difficult it was to actually achieve this. And he said, look, when I took over uh, the Fed and then when Reagan came in, interest rates had to be pumped up to 21%, not a misprint, 21%, eye-wateringly high to deal with 13% inflation. Inflation in the 1970s had gotten totally out of control. As he put it, Frankenstein's monster was loose upon the village and no one knew what to do. And so he went to President Reagan and he said, look, Mr. President, we can kill the beast of inflation or at least enchain it in a cave somewhere. But we can only do this if we pump interest rates up. It turned out to be 21 percent. But if we do this, we will have the worst recession since the Great Depression, which indeed happened between 1980 and 1982. It certainly will cost you in the midterms and it may well cost you reelection. And he said, Reagan, in his avuncular way, patted me on the hand and said, Paul, you let me worry about the politics. You worry about inflation. And then Volcker looked at me and said, and that's what we're missing, leadership. It's easy to know what to do, but you need a leader willing to do it, whatever the consequences. And that stuck with me, that story. Uh, and that's like why I decided to begin today's chat about the beast of inflation being loose again. Frankenstein's monster is once again upon the village. And I thought I'd begin this because it struck me that that's what's missing, genuine leadership, people willing to bear the short-term political costs for the long-term policy gain. And I mean that in both parties. That's what's needed. It's being heroic. It's caring about more than yourself. And that's what we have missing in the United States, in both parties, and indeed around the world. We need someone. We need Paul Volcker to get it right, but we need Ronald Reagan to go through with the policy. And we have Neither. Instead, we have Joe Biden, who's the cause of the beast of inflation getting loose. And look, a main reason that inflation got loose, yes, uh, there's been COVID dislocations, supply chain dislocations from COVID and the increasing Cold War between the United States and China. All of that is true. Russia and there was energy price dislocations for a while, though I think that's calming down. All of that is true. 
All of that led to the beast of inflation having a chance to get away. But the, the main reason, and central bankers totally lost the plot, no doubt about it. I love that Andrew Bailey, head of the Bank of England, his answer is that somehow I'm not allowed to criticize him. Well, sir, in a Jeffersonian system, when you lose your basic job, all I want central banks to do, not all this other nonsense we talk about, also worry about growth, also worry about ESG, also worry, nonsense, worry about inflation. That's all I want you to do. Do less and do it well. Instead, we give them a laundry list of things to do. And predictably, central banks from the ECB to the Bank of England to, to the Fed have lost the plot over inflation. And Andrew Bailey's reaction is, how dare you criticize me? I think we need a lot more criticism of, frankly, your fairly inept handling of your job. In a Republican system, a Jeffersonian system, as we said last time, I ought to criticize you when you do badly, and I ought to praise you when we do well. We've lost the basic notion of achievement, of accomplishment, of it not being your title that matters, but what you do. I don't admire immensely Paul Volcker because he was chairman of the Fed. We've had good Fed chairman. We've had mediocre Fed chairman. We've had poor Fed chairman. And in Volcker, we had a great Fed chairman. What matters is what they do. And we've meritocratically lost the plot here, Mr. Bailey. Anyway, all this is true. But the main reason, the main reason for the rise in, of inflation is that politicians poured gas onto a raging fire. And to be fair, at the beginning, I think they did this with the best of intentions. Fearful of COVID dislocation, Trump, and then especially the Biden administration, were not sure that pent-up demand from COVID would take care of much of the economic problem. Remember, we shut the world down. It was an induced coma for two years, and they weren't sure how quickly uh, the American economy and the global economy would bounce back. And this makes perfect sense. How could they know? This was a unique circumstance, and all the incentives were to throw money at the problem, enact trillion-dollar extra emergency spending bill after trillion-dollar emergency spending bill, because far better to be criticized for throwing too much money into the system than too little. Doing too little after COVID would have caused a political firestorm. So all the incentives and the lack of understanding what would happen, I have nothing but sympathy for them. They didn't know how pent-up demand would take care of much of the economic problem. However, by the last spending bill in March last year, that wasn't the situation. COVID was winding down. Everyone knew this. Instead, what was going on was the Democratic Party, which is increasingly fueled by its progressive left wing uh, wing of the party, uh, the leftists within the party. That's where all the action is, where the activists, the money, the intellectual excitement are coming from, not from tired Joe Biden. And this wing of the party looked at the politics and said, look, we're going to lose in the midterms control of probably the House and the Senate. It turned out the Senate went their way, but we're no longer going to dominate Congress and the presidency where we can pass spending bill after spending bill and do exactly what we like. Instead, we're going to have Republicans controlling one, if not both, houses of Congress. And so the pizza party will be over. As a result, we need to jam through this last spending bill of $1.7 trillion and fill it with a Democratic Party wish list. We'll blame COVID, but we'll fill it through with a grab bag of everything that we can possibly get for spending because we're not going to get any more spending or new spending coming up with the Republicans controlling either the House or the Senate or both. And so we're going to ram this last bill through under the guise of COVID, and we're going to get all the things that we want, a wish list 
from 20 years of being in opposition. We never know again when we're going to have the incredibly favorable political situation to control the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And so they rammed through the spending, even when COVID was coming to an end. And that's what I fault them for. That's the problem. As Larry Summers, the great economist, former Treasury Secretary, who's got this exactly right and deserves full political risk praise, just as Paul Krugman somehow still having a job despite being wrong about literally everything. He's the Yasser Arafat of uh, macroeconomics. If he told me to go left, I'd go right. If he told me to go up, I'd go down. But he got, this, he got the notion right that increased inflation was not a transitory problem, as Krugman ever wrong said. Larry Summers said, look, this is simple microeconomics. There's been too much money because of all this spending chasing too few goods. This is my, my microeconomics is how you get inflation. Too much money chasing too few goods. And in the case of the United States, the various fiscal, fiscal stimuli, including the horrible last one, meant that you have four, a 14 to 15 percent increase of GDP in the economy, all this fresh money awash in the economy, but that economy very quickly bouncing back, far more quickly than most people thought, to its pre-COVID levels. So if you have 15 percent more money, but the economy bouncing back to where it was, inflation is inevitable. That's what happened historically as a historian. And so Biden can blame a lack of regulation, which is what Democrats always say when there's an economic problem, while ignoring that they spent money like a drunken sailor. That's what let the beast of inflation loose. That's, as Volcker would say, why Frankenstein's monster is loose again on the village, because of profligate, profligate, democratic spending. Again, at the beginning, somewhat understandable because we didn't know about COVID and what would happen after. But at the end, entirely criminally negligent that they added in this spending to get their wish list through even when COVID was coming to an end. And that's why we have massive inflation. The second problem that comes out of this massive inflation once the beast is loose is that inflation, unlike unemployment, affects everyone. If you're unemployed, it's a tragedy. But it doesn't affect the whole of society. Even in the Great Depression, the unemployment rate was no more in the United States than between a quarter and a third. That's a tragedy for the people who have it happen. But the rest of the country, although uneasy, that's not a tragedy. Inflation affects literally everyone. It's best thought of as a tax on everyone, particularly what used to be called the working poor, the lower middle class. Uh, this is a tax on them that many can't bear as Americans live credit card payment to credit card payment. And suddenly to have inflation at six, seven, eight percent is an immense burden. Uh, the solution to this is simple. You once the beast is loose, catching it is simple uh, in terms of policy, difficult in terms of politics. You increase interest rates until something breaks. You rapidly shoot up interest rates in policy terms as fast as you can. Uh, in order to regain control of the plot, which the central bankers have lost through the spending of the politicians and them not paying enough attention. And as a result, you raise interest rates until something in the system begins to creak and groan and break. And by doing that, you hope to regain control of it without there being any big problem. Well, that was working fine for Jerome Powell and the Fed until this last week, when the Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, is an unintended consequence of the beast of inflation claiming now banking victims. And it is the victim of the end of ultra low interest rates. The SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, is undoubtedly the victim of the end of the era 
of ultra-low interest rates, the two generations that Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan bought us. Um, SVB bought large amounts of bonds. Silicon Valley Bank was the bank of venture capitalists out in Silicon Valley, as the name suggests. And they had an awful lot of cash rumbling around in deposits. And so, as banks do, they chose to invest it. And they invested it, they thought, safely in what is normally safe, bonds and treasury bills, which are generally safe, except for a couple basic problems. SVB didn't have a risk officer for the last eight months of its position, meaning no one was minding the candy store. And the people it did have uh, who dealt with risk talk in, the, in there, if you look, and please go online and look, talk about them being lesbians and queer nation people and gender neutral and fluid. And I don't care about any of that. I care. Are you good at banking? I could care less about your private life. But again, back to Paul Volcker, let's worry less about being woke and more about being, you know, a good banker. That's what should matter. We've totally lost reality here with identity politics on the left. I don't care if you're purple with spots. I don't care what you are. I care. Are you a good banker? These people obviously were not, and not having a risk officer for eight months is a ridiculous mistake. But buying bonds and treasury bills on its own is not. And so SVB bought a whole bunch of this, which normally would be safe, except nobody gamed out what everyone knew was coming, which is a dramatic increase in the Fed interest rates in order to combat inflation. Everyone alive knew the Fed was going to have to increase interest rates once the beast got loose, except the folks at SVP who were busy talking about their credentials in the woke movement and not having a risk officer, and no one bothered gaming out a dramatic increase in interest rates when literally everyone, including my interns, knew this was coming? Well, they didn't. And that's what you do. You increase interest rates dramatically to, to cut off inflation and put the beast back in its cave. Of course, when you increase interest rates, what happens to bonds and treasury bill bills, their value goes down. That's innate. So they didn't game this out. They were asleep at the switch. And as a result of this, the bonds and treasury bills were worth $15 billion less than the $90 billion they'd invested in. So SVB found itself down $15 billion off their $90 billion investment in bonds and treasury bills because inflation went up as everyone else knew it would. Uh, they tried to raise money. It got around among the investment community. They were overstuffed with Silicon Valley types who knew each other. And amazingly now on WhatsApp, they wrote each other saying they're having trouble raising money. And then the, you, you run into the prisoner's dilemma. Everybody gets their money out as fast as they can because the temptation, you don't want to be the last man when the music stops looking for a chair. And as a result, there was an old fashioned think uh, it's a wonderful life. There is a bank run. And literally, uh, Two Fridays ago, there was a bank run, and fully one quarter of FC, SVB's total deposits were withdrawn that Friday. $42 billion was withdrawn in one day. One quarter of the deposits was withdrawn. Once the run began, the herd mentality set in, and it's the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. Um, and this is a result directly of the spending and the beast being loosed and the efforts to catch it directly, as I've shown here. Um, the problem with this is that the Fed is now likely to back away a little bit from fighting inflation because the banks are groaning um, and now all mid-level banks are in danger. The large banks since the 2008-2009 crisis have been de deemed systemic and are too large to fail. Everyone knows they will be directly bailed out 
by the federal government. Again, we don't need more regulation. We need better regulation because what that rule did, and I remember thinking this at the time, was, yeah, that protects the large banks, but that puts a target on the back of every medium-sized bank in the country, including banks that are doing rather well and whose balance sheets are not as stupid as that of SVB because they are not protected. This becomes an open question and it's open season on mid-level banks in the United States. And sure enough, the contagion is spread somewhat because of that, because of this poorly drafted legislation. The big banks are safe, but that just puts a target on the back of the medium-sized banks. But all of this, all of this, and don't buy it's a lack of regulation. It's due to bad regulation and the Biden administration spending money like a drunken sailor. Predictably, Frankenstein's monster got loose. And then in the efforts to catch the monster, this banking crisis erupted directly because of SVB's buying, overbuying of uh, bonds and treasury bills. And the bonds and the treasury bills went down as interest rates went up. And that simply is what happened. Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan bought us two generations apiece from the beast. But the beast is loose, and now he's claiming banking victims. Thanks very much. It was fun to do a macro one for a change and talk through the story of what's going on and why Frankenstein's monster is loose amongst us and why this is now, I would argue, one of the three major political risks out there. For those of you who have been following me, you know I've been saying this for a while. Um, we weren't quite as quick as Larry Summers, but I have to say I'm proud as could be that we very early on said that one of the three big problems of the year, China-U.S. Cold War, Ukraine spinning out of control and continuing, as I think now is clear to everyone, our prediction in January looks awfully good now, and the macroeconomic situation getting away from us as Volcker's gift to us dissipates after the stupidity and overspending of the Biden administration, the central bankers losing control, and then a central bank crisis being the match that sets off the explosion, that the macro level U.S., China, and Ukraine are still all out there as the major risks we have to deal with. And I think that we're playing this, this year so far a thousand percent. And we will continue to give you this cutting edge work every single week or in the, around the world in 20 minutes. Again, so many of you have joined and we're very grateful. Please do subscribe and please do give. We're only asking $70 a year, $7 a month, or $70 a year to keep giving you this cutting edge on the money up to the minute work that we love doing so very much. Y'all have a great weekend, and I will see you next week from Lake Como, uh, where we take the show on the road yet again. Take care.